Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. Yeah, welcome back into the best natural history podcast. Uh, yeah. Certainly the most yeah. cupboard-based one, at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you been up to this week? Um. Oh, gosh, what have I been up to? You know what? My mind's gone completely blank. I know that's really boring <laughs> for everybody, but rather than like painstakingly make you guys sit through minutes of me trying to rack my brain with what well, I, did I have down. done something, but I can't forget. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember what it is. So just move on. <laughs> well, you and I went. You and I went for a bit of a a wander, and uh, if if you'd have seen That's us on our right. that Facebook is what we, yes. Facebook live thing, because we got bored whilst we were walking, I thought I'd put that on whilst we had uh, signal. We're wandering across um, Crow Point, uh, which is down on the the River Tor. But to hear more oh. about that, you're going to have to listen to the end of the episode. I was going to say we, uh... we will reveal all at the end of the episode as to what that we had was a very interesting to. meeting didn't we oh yes 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 so uh yeah listen to the end of the episode for for that and that's not just us trying to get you to listen all the way because well if you really want to you just sort of scroll through into the end bit i suppose <laughs> but don't do that don't, <laughs> don't do that we've got, that we've got good stuff coming up um but yeah apart from us going for a bit of a wonder um well whilst you rack your brain if you've done anything else there and i um I went bird watching with some of my students, which wasn't a disaster, which actually turned out to be rather good. And we saw four or two pairs of red-breasted meganza in their winter plumage, which was pretty damn good, actually. And something that, that we spotted from a good distance and honed in on to, to see. Have you been able to rack your brain yet as to what else you've been up to? No, no. It was, I, I, I'm not going to remember. And I was lucky that you were here to remember part of it for me. So <laughs> we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> Fair enough. It's what I do. I'm, I'm here to remind you where you are and uh, what we're doing. So um, shall we move on then into the news? Yes, let's do it. Okay. Right. Well, we are into this week's news, Aaron. You know exactly where you uh, where you are now. We've <laughs> you've not lost your place. Um, so, do you want to take us out and tell us what's in our newsreel? Every week, we're inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad, and the extraordinary. So let's open up our natural history cupboard newsreel where we've compiled some of the more interesting headlines and dive on in. Mm. Uh, so up first, I have got from RNZ News, uh, a new species of gecko on Auckland's West Coast has been named. A new species of gecko has been discovered on the West Coast of Auckland in New Zealand uh, and uh, at last has its own official name, Bob. the Karoi. Uh, and I've probably butchered that. The species uh, was found in 2014, and after a decade of research, the reptile can now officially be described. Very pretty-looking gecko as well. Yeah, wicked. Uh, and next, from Fizz.org, 
how food availability could catalyze cultural transmission in wild orangutans. So published in the journal iScience, an 18-year study on wild orangutans undertaken by two Max Planck Institutes and the University of Leipzig has concluded that individuals who grew up in research-rich environments had a keener natural tendency to learn from others, demonstrating how an individual's ecology impacts their social learning opportunities and furthermore, how a behaviour can become a cultural innovation. Mm. Uh, from science.org, I've got sighting of newborn great white shark unlike anything we have ever seen before. The baby appears to have been shrouded in its mother's milk, indicating that it may have only been hours old. Um, the newborn great white shark was spotted off the coast of California uh, in July of last year, surrounded by a strange white substance. No one really knows where fearsome great white sharks go to, uh, to have their young, uh, but last year, a drone flying off the California coast captured a video that would help solve the mystery possibly and provide uh, some of the first proof that newborn great whites enter the world wrapped in a gossamer coat of their mother's milk, effectively. The footage of a 1.5 meter long newborn, uh, not exactly what you call a small uh, animal by any stretch of the imagination, mm. uh, was enshrouded in a milky substance uh, and published today in Environmental Biology of Fishes, uh, it's said was like anything uh, unlike anything that we have ever seen before, uh, said the co-author Philip Stearns, an organismal biologist at the University of California, Riverside. Uh, he said it was exhilarating to see. It's a lovely oh. picture as well of a little, little baby great white. Yeah, it is a really lovely picture, although I am probably the only person on planet Earth that looks at pictures of great white sharks and thinks, oh, that's a cute yeah. animal. No, I think that as well. You think they're cute? Oh, yeah, good. I'm glad. Still ocean bound now as we head on to live science online uh, for an article uh, titled Hidden DNA Found in Blue Whales Reveals They've Been Mating with Other Species and Their Hybrid Offspring. Uh, a new study has revealed a concerning level of hybridization with fin whales in the genomes of blue whales. Published in the journal Conservation Genetics, the researchers analyzing the North Atlantic blue whale, one of the most endangered, uh, had such high levels of fin whale DNA that it could prove a hindrance to the population's recovery. Furthermore, they found that not only did the initial hybridizations occur, but the resulting flu whales could themselves produce viable offspring when is that what we're calling them flu whales flu whales yeah <laughs> <laughs> i like it they i just imagine uh, a very uh, an, a whale with a very snotty nose yeah a whale and, and they just sneezing under the water ah the blowhole is gone again <laughs> um but their their offspring can breed can they're viable when they breed back with um with blue male blue whales which are further muddies the waters does that become a blue flu whale a blue flu yeah <laughs> uh i've got one from um the bbc online pterosaur unique flying reptile soared above the island uh, the isle of sky uh, a, a new species of reptile um has been found that lived 168 to 166 million years ago uh, on the island of sky uh it's wing its wings, shoulders, legs, and backbone were found in a rock on a beach, but the uh, the skull is unfortunately missing. 
The scientists were surprised to find a pterosaur from this period, uh, as it was thought to mostly live in China, which is actually an incorrect way of, of saying that. It's a member of a group called Darwinopterus, right. uh, which is a fairly recently discovered genus of pterosaur. Um, and yes, the first ones were found in uh, in China, but it basically shows the diversity of this group was not just uh, in China, they're in the UK and probably most of Europe at the time. And mm. there have also been some found in South America as well. So right. a fairly widespread group of pterosaurs. Um, yeah. The name that it's been given is Cooptera, uh, and it's the second pterosaur fossil found on Sky. And its name is from Gallic, uh, meaning Kao, meaning uh, from the word Kao, meaning mist, and is a reference to the Gallic name of the Isle of Sky. Elena Ekeo or the Isle of Mist. And you know what? I've probably butchered that and I feel really quite bad considering that, you know, I'm Scottish. So I probably should, although I've never been able to speak Gaelic. So yeah. <laughs> but yes, it is a fantastic pterosaur from the Isle of Sky. Um, and my next article comes to us from Science Daily. It's some really good news. Um, world's first successful embryo transfer in rhinos paves the way for saving the northern white rhino from extinction. This uh, world's first saw scientists implant a southern white rhino with an embryo produced in vitro and resulted in a pregnancy. The success is a proof of concept that can now be applied to the embryos of northern white rhino into surrogate mothers with the potential to drag them back from extinction. Uh, so really, really great leap forward there. Um, mm. and that wraps it up for uh this week's news really and so on. Remember, if you guys at home have articles of or, or news topics of interest to you and you think we should cover them here, send them in, and you can use any of the usual ways to contact us, or you can get a sneezing whale to to chime in, and you might yeah. see. <laughs> you might see your chosen topic or news article covered here or in the main topic discussion and with that said gareth i think i've got the main topic today you do indeed uh yeah and it comes to us from science news um and this is the news that the endangered species act is turning 50 has it succeeded happy birthday yeah now, now to be specific this is the usa's endangered species act um now Gareth, did you know that the USA's Endangered Species Act, which I'm going to call the ESA from now on, was enacted 50 years ago this past December? I was not, but do you know what? I'm honestly surprised it's still in existence after four years of a certain Mr. Trump being in power, where he basically took a blowtorch to most of the regulations for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So am I. Um, and I'm also surprised with the the effect it's 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 had despite this there's something we'll talk about at the end but there really is a problem when uh when environmental um protection is subject to the whims and agendas of of politicians but uh we'll probably dive into that nearer the end so the esa came into effect on december 28th 1973 and as it celebrates its five decades of influence this article looks into its impact and whether or not it ultimately is succeeding. So, much like other endangered species legislation, the ESA essentially protects at-risk species. It has two main aims. Uh, firstly, to prevent the extinction of species, and secondly, to recover species that find themselves listed. Uh, it covers over 2,300 species of animal and plant, 
And it's one of, if not the most powerful law the US has in its arsenal to protect plants and animals from extinction. The act functions essentially by thoroughly analyzing species feared to be at risk of extinction. If necessary, the species in question is then added to the list and government agencies can then ready an action plan to kickstart its recovery. So noting it's 50 years of service, the article then sets out to weigh up its successes. Gareth, can you think of any off the top of your head uh, successes for the ESA? I mean, CITES to an extent, but that's an international thing and it's it's more to do with the trade in animals than mm -hmm. um, anything. I, I honestly can't think of any sort of successor to it now. No, I will... Um... I, I I don't blame you because obviously we're in the UK. We're we we're quite um far divided from not not necessarily, but we're 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 quite removed from from um, mm. America. I just thought I'd ask because it, it is part of what we do. But uh the one that instantly comes to mind, the success that these guys have had that instantly comes to mind for me is the protection it offers large predators in the States. Um, so your bears. And oh, did you say success or successor? No, successes. Yeah. Ah, I was thinking oh, a successor. Sorry, mate, oh, yeah, I'll give no, you that... a second chance to answer then. Right. Well, then I would I would say things like the bald eagle. Then. Yeah. Uh, uh, bison. Is probably the other one. And um, and alligators. Surely they're on there. Yes. So that was that. I that was. One of the ones that one of these predators that they've protected the wolves, bears, alligators. Um, another one which you might be interested in, I'll list a, a few others that are of note, but one that you might be particularly interested in is the magazine Mountain Shagreen. Do you know what that is? Magazine Mountain Shagreen. Hmm. I can tell you what I would think it was if you had said that name to me and I didn't already know what the animal was. I would think it was a bird. So there's a clue it's not a bird, <laughs> it's not a bird. Is it going to be an insect? It's an invertebrate. Mm. It's not an insect. Not an insect. No, you've got me. Go on then. It, what is it? it? It's a species of snail. Oh, it's a okay. really small snail that was that was it, it was incredibly at risk of extinction, um, and it has recovered after forests in Arkansas were protected from habitat loss. That's all they needed to do. Protect, mm. I think, a particular forest in Arkansas, and the numbers uh, increase. So it shows you just like it can be really simple to fix these things. But if that yeah. simple thing wasn't done, that's it. A species would have disappeared. So another yep. one, another couple of examples, few examples of reptiles such as the Californian island night lizard and the Ohio Lake Erie water snake, both of which are enjoying recoveries. Golden paintbrush plants of Washington and Oregon were down to just 20,000 individuals. They're now up to 325,000 and no longer need to be listed or have a slot on the list. Uh, the Oregon, staying in Oregon, the Oregon chub, which is like a kind of silver minnow um, fish, it was the first fish to find its way back off the list, recovering from 1,000 individuals to some 160,000. The American Berrien beetle is similarly delisted due to successful protection efforts. And American-born humpback whales reached a low of 8% of their historic population size. And now they number around 11,000 individuals. So another huge uh, victory there, because they actually say that they're not sure if, if 
the protections put in place for these humpbacks have either allowed the humpback population to um, match what its historic um, population size was or exceed it, which is brilliant news. Um, I won't go into a whole list of them because I'm sure I could go on longer, but those were the examples or some of the examples that the article gave. And I thought they were also actually some of the ones that would be more personally interesting to the two of us um, being, you know, predators, cetaceans and invertebrates. Uh, so as of today, 99% of species listed to prevent um, extinction have enjoyed the aid that the Act provides. But it's not all success. Um, and I think uh, only 3% of the species that needed to recover um, actually made it. Um, but yeah, to analyze and draw up action plans for a species that is already on the brink of extinction is a practice well and truly too little too late in in some, if not many cases. And it's on this aspect, it's second aim, the concept of recovery, where the act seems uh, to receive most of its criticism. Uh, many of the species the act could protect, it doesn't due to the time it takes to push these things through government. As an example, 21 species were removed from the list. 20, uh, of, of, sorry, as an example, 21 species were removed from the list last October, not because they recovered. Uh, they were removed by the US Fish and Wildlife Service because they'd gone extinct while waiting, uh, which is a phenomenon likely to be mirrored by those waiting to get a dentist appointment in North Devon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> furthermore, Studies indicate that most of the species on the list didn't get protection until their populations were already dangerously low. This occurs despite the law stating very clearly that any species under recommendation should not wait more than two years before having a decision made. Now, most in the 2010s had to wait around three years, some far longer. And in fact, the decade before that saw a waiting time that was almost a decade in duration anyway. Uh, so this can ultimately and obviously prove disastrous for those species with small or quickly declining populations to begin with. The problems tend to be uh, due to underfunding and understaffing. And the ESA has difficulty vetting recommendations in a lawful and efficient manner because of this. And this isn't helped, as me and Gareth have already kind of alluded to, by political agendas Um being put before scientific data, as was the case when Trump's administration practically handed the US wolf population back to its previous study, just struggle, uh, despite how hard they worked to get the wolf um, up to good numbers again. So is it all just a waste of time or has the ESA proved its worth? Now, I would argue that having the act in place at all is better than nothing at all. Uh, and its successes also speak for themselves. So especially when you're looking at um, ignoring Trump's um, uh, influence there, um, if you look at predator population numbers, um, that's a huge success. Winning over any agricultural, agriculturally dependent human population uh, when it comes to conserving and... and um, increasing the populations of predators that is a huge feat and then also the the um the success with the whales is incredible um so how do we make amendments that support its 
it's uh, improved efficiency for the next decade and further. So one suggestion being put forward is a new law proposed in order to bolster the ESA. And they're calling this the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Um, now, this act would function as a companion to the ESA, acting on species before they require listing. It would funnel uh, $1.4 billion uh, to US states and tribal nations for them to maintain healthy populations of wildlife, benefiting species on the ESA's list and species on concern lists of individual states. The article words this proposed legal symbiosis really nicely, basically suggesting that the ESA is the emergency room where the RAWA would be the preventative care. And this really is inspiring and does inspire a bit of hope for the betterment of a powerful, historic and successful, if somewhat flawed, law to protect endangered plants and animals. Um, so that is kind of how I would close out my feelings on this. What do you reckon, Gareth? Well, I mean, anything that's going to give extra protection, it, it yeah. almost needs to have extra protection um, from any change in political, you know, uh, alignment in, yes. in, in America. Yeah. It almost needs to be... Um, this is one of those things that I suppose we can we can say everything that we want because it will never happen because we're obviously not in either power or in America. Mm -hmm. But it almost needs to be enshrined into a newer version of their constitution that wildlife is protected, you know, in the same way as uh, as as other rights are. Imagine if America was as a passionate country about its wildlife as it is about the Second Amendment, you know, um, yeah. It would be uh, it'd be a very different place um, in a lot of ways. I agree. Yeah, and that is that is I think that's the crux of the issue. Um, yes. I'd like to hear what I'd like to hear what our American listeners uh, think because they, you guys are our second biggest um, listening audience, uh, everyone in America. So True. tell us what you think about the uh, this act and and you know everything that's gone on with your wildlife there's such a huge uh gulf in in what people have animal and plant wise you know from mm. one coast to another and and weirdly the first thing that came to mind when you mentioned um the i think it was the the paintbrush the plant yeah the paintbrush plant yeah you Don't know where do, do you know where i remember that from more than anywhere where's that red dead redemption 2 of course, I wondered why that was so familiar. Yes, it's one of the plants that you can pick in it, and I love that game for the the very simple sort of condensing of America's um, wildlife habitats. You know, throughout that game, where you could go from the Rocky Mountains right the way down to the the Everglades and and out into the the deserts of like Arizona and that, mm. and and be in these different habitats. Um, so yeah, I mean. It, the wildlife that that you guys have in North America is is utterly astounding. It's it's basically the entire continent of Europe, you know, uh, amount of wildlife wise, but in such drastic different biomes, it's uh, it's amazing. So to see America's wildlife protected is it's something that should just be. It's a no brainer, really. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I do. I agree completely. And also the 
the point you made, the point I alluded to earlier on about uh, about the, the environmental acts and laws being protected against the change, the ever changing and quickly changing political whims and agendas. I mean, mm. I think if I if I remember right, the political turnaround in America is four years is a presidential kind of yeah. run, um, at which point, if you're popular enough, you can go for another four years. But that that's it. Then you've had your eight years. You're out. But yeah. um, yeah. but you could, worst case scenario, have have someone in for eight years who undoes, who could undo fifty years of work. In those eight well, years, could undo yeah. fifty years of work in in four years if they if they tried hard. <laughs> well, uh, well no, totally they wouldn't even need to try hard either. actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it completely happened with wolves, didn't it? And other other things too. It, it one mm. of the reasons why it's so understaffed, especially today, is because of of what Trump Trump and his administration did. Yeah. Um, it does need protecting against the those those changes. But again, that that's something I think we can say in the uk too um we are prime ministers are in power for is it seven years it's far too long i know that much yeah it's, it's, <laughs> yeah well well they were the our the political party that we're not going to go on a massive political tangent i promise but the political party that have been in power over here have managed to stay in power far beyond um what what would be normal uh, because of <laughs> I now I had shades of you saying he's managed to stay in power far longer past his term than anyone. Oh yeah, well yes, <laughs> yeah. Obi Wan's words ring true in this case. Except unlike the Dark Lords of the Sith, I can't really see very many. I can't see uh, Darth Johnson being much of a <laughs> much of a member of the Sith. More of a a Gungan. Uh, all all the uh, all the. <laughs> kind of political leaders that have come from this party have been completely incompetent. Um and 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 one was beaten by a lettuce. Most most of them most of them are very much uh not interested in this kind of thing. But before we go on a on a deep tangent into politics and how today's politics uh mirror some elements of Star Wars, um <laughs> we'll move on, won't we? Uh, actually before we le- completely leave the news uh the news segment it is worth noting, Gareth, um, that literally after we'd finished recording the newsreel part of this segment, we got a message from oh, yes. one of our listeners, Louise O'Leary, who's always kind enough to send in uh, uh, news articles, and she wanted us to cover the the blue whale, fin whale hybridization. So we have, as if we were reading your mind, we have we have done that. So yeah, I hope we've now covered the flu whale. The flu whale, yeah. That's going to be my new favourite thing. <laughs> More flu whales. <laughs> you don't want to be near it. It's one hell of a tissue. Yeah. Well, shall we head on into uh, this week's creature feature with a slight difference? Yes. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, this one. Hmm. This is the second time that we've done something like this, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, as you ha- will soon see, Drew has one on his list that I feel inclined to steal. Well, I think it's there for the taking. Yeah. <laughs> it's the creature feature. So this week, I would like to celebrate the life of one of the most influential people to me 
but also for the study of natural sciences and essentially the way that science works today when we look at the natural world. And that's Charles Darwin. You don't really have to explain who Charles Darwin is to most people. He's fairly well known. Uh, if you ask pe uh, people about him, most of the things that they know is obviously theory of evolution. But despite Darwin's fame, what he's often remembered for is actually the wrong reasons. Charles Darwin didn't invent the theory of evolution. The no, idea of transmutation or transformation from one species to another had actually been around for a very long time before him uh, mm. and even suggested by his grandfather uh, before this point. So it's not a new idea that he'd somehow just plucked out of the air. In fact, he is, in fact, the inventor of the idea of natural selection. And this is sometimes uh, mixed together. So hopefully, looking at uh, Darwin, we should actually gain an idea as to... Um, what the difference between evolution and natural selection actually is. So even to this day, Darwin can sometimes be seen as a controversial figure. Shouldn't really be the case, but in some places he is. Because just like other famous people, um, he went against the standard ideas of how things worked and challenged the notion of a biblical world uh, and the ideas he put forward can still be seen by some today even as her uh, heretical. But essentially Darwin was challenging the ideas of of what he saw around him at the time and uh, even to this day people are still a bit weirded out by that but i think we should really be past that point anyway darwin's theory painted humankind as part of nature not its ruler but like copernicus uh, who in the mid-16th century had challenged the notion of the earth at the center of the universe darwin knew how controversial the implications of his theory was. And he himself actually came from a religious background, uh, which is why he was actually initially intended to not allow the publication of his ideas until after he was actually in the grave. He really didn't want the ideas sort of going out because he, he actually held quite a lot of intrepidation about uh, his, his thoughts at the time. Yeah, that's right. But he published his findings, uh, and we now have one of the most influential pieces of scientific literature in existence that shapes, well, yeah, everything we know about the natural world and, and how it functions has some tie towards this. So a little bit about the early life of, of Charles Darwin. This is one of the areas that I knew very little about when I was actually researching the, uh, the life of Charles Darwin. And in fact, ever since getting hold of Darwin's notebook, the, um, not the actual one, obviously, <laughs> the, the, the version that you can get from the Natural History Museum, I've been enthralled. I've absolutely loved that book. Interesting fact for you, Aaron, were you aware of this, that he's actually related to the Wedgwood family, as in Wedgwood pottery? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. So his grandfather, Josiah Wedgwood, he was basically one of the, the, the founders of the, uh, the Wedgwood brand, pottery brand, I don't know, you know, how, however you want to put it. Uh, Darwin's, parents, interesting. Darwin's parents, uh, Robert Darwin and Emma Wedgwood, uh, had six children in all. Darwin was the fifth. Uh, and his his dad was a doctor, and this is quite important as to uh, how Darwin would develop. He studied medicine in Edinburgh uh, and at Edinburgh University uh, and developed views that were modern enough to regard the practice of bleeding patients as barbaric. Uh, because of his practices and the way that he dealt with his patients, he was actually quite a successful man, so much so that he was able to build up enough of a uh, financial backing from his, his surgery and, and practice to be able to lend uh, money out to people, uh, even in the thousands of pounds, which 
at that point in history, being able to lend thousands of pounds is um, it's a considerable feat. So they weren't exactly, you know, they weren't exactly a poor family, the Darwins. <laughs> By doing this, uh, he was able to basically fund his, his now thriving surgery, along with his inheritance from his father, Erasmus. And I think that's a brilliant name, Erasmus. meant that uh, Robert had enough money to build what would become Darwin's childhood home. Uh, it's called The Mount. Uh, it was a modern red brick building, uh, and it was built exactly to his father's specifications. He had outbuildings to serve as patient quarters, stables, and even had areas that could be used um, for their own laboratories so he could carry out uh, minor experiments. Darwin and his brothers actually made good use of these areas as well. And one of the first memories that Darwin apparently recalls, he said that he was sitting on the knee of his sister, Caroline, while she was cutting oranges for him, uh, and she was stopped by the sudden appearance of a cow near the window. The infant Darwin flinched, causing Caroline to cut him with the knife, leaving a scar that he would actually carry for the rest of his life. Now, that obviously means that he's a, uh, fairly good uh, for remembering uh, a quite a early experience. Um, I don't think I remember as far back as being a, a small infant. Do you, Aaron? I think if my conversations with, with my mum are correct, then I I think I remember back to my earliest memory is 18 months. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah I, I can describe it in pretty good detail. Well, there yeah. you go. You, you seem to have the same ability as Charles Darwin there. Jumping forward now, the eight-year-old Charles Darwin by this point had a taste for natural history and for collecting things, uh, rocks, feathers, birds, eggs, all sorts of different things. He continued doing this throughout school. It led him later on to have views on collecting and the passion for collecting. He uh, later reflected by saying, the passion for collecting, which leads a man to systematic views of naturalism, a virtuoso or a miser, very strong in me and clearly innate, as none of my other sisters or brothers even had a taste for it. Now, this is the part I like to think I've got something similar with him. I've I've always collected things like natural curiosities and everything since I was a little kid. So uh, I like to think that little bit is, is similar to Darwin in that sense. I'm nowhere near, but, you know. <laughs> we now jump forward a bit to when Darwin spent the summer of 1825 as an apprentice doctor, helping his father treat the poor of Shropshire, um, where the family lived. Uh, before going to a well-regarded university of Edinburgh Medical School with his brother Erasmus uh, in the October of 1825. Darwin found lectures dull uh, and the surgery distressing. In fact, he really didn't like it. Uh, and he actually started to neglect his studies and was just not bothered uh, by turning up and doing it. He was probably a very bad student by the sounds of it, but clearly he wasn't interested in the the subject that he was being made to study. His dad wanted him to become a, uh, a doctor. He learned taxidermy in around 40 daily hour-long sessions from John Edmundston, a freed black slave. And this is quite an interesting point to add in there. The, uh, John Edmundston had basically spent a good amount of time uh, exploring in parts of South America before settling in the UK and becoming quite a renowned taxidermist. Another interesting side note on Darwin and slavery, Darwin's family uh, and his father, as well as his grandfather, actually highly detested the practice of slavery, which at the time was still rather uh, a radical view uh, to have. And in fact, uh, this was passed down to Darwin, and he did end up having a fairly good friendship with John Edmonston 
uh, as he, he also had similar enlightened views to many uh, of the native and local populations of people he met later whilst on his voyage on the Beagle. And that will become apparent mm. again. So he was yeah. a forward thinker for his time. Back to him at school. In Darwin's second year at the university, he joined the Plinaean Society, a student naturalist history group featuring lively debates in which they radically and thought over the materialistic views and challenged orthodox religious concepts of science. And he actually assisted Robert Edmund Grant in his investigations of anatomy and life of marine invertebrates on the Firth of Forth. So we can actually see that he's finding natural science is far more interesting than than just human anatomy and, and becoming a, a surgeon. So he basically became bored with some of the courses that he was doing as well. Uh, and he, he slipped away to join others and, and to, uh, to join some of these uh, societies. Uh, he found a lot of the debates on geology rather boring as well, because at the time they were the way that they were presented. And he learned more about the classification of plants and assisted with work at the collections museum and actually helped to build up and catalogue some of the uh, the exhibits which made up the museum uh, at the time, which was the largest museum in Europe for uh, natural specimens. So there will be specimens probably still in that collection today that he would have catalogued. But Darwin's neglect for his medical studies annoyed his father greatly, who, who sent him to Christ's College in Cambridge in January of 1828 to study for a Bachelor of Arts degree, which is the first step to becoming an Anglican County parson. Uh, it was basically the fallback career for him. You know, if you weren't going to become a doctor, then you're be going to become a priest or something, uh, you know, a, a notable uh, career to have at that time for someone of his social standing. But Darwin was unqualified for Cambridge's exams and was actually required instead to join the ordinary degree course as opposed to the higher degree course. But as you could probably guess, he wasn't so keen on this either. He actually preferred riding and shooting as opposed to studying. So he became possibly the worst student you could you could uh, hope to have. Hmm. Um, Darwin became at this point a close friend uh, and follower of uh, botany professor John Stevenson Henslow, who will become quite apparent as to how important he is as we go on. He also met other leading um, naturalists who were a mixture of theologists and naturalists, because a lot of the what we consider uh, science and natural based history learning was happening by relief. Religious people at this point trying to make sense of God's work and uh, put some order into to things. So you had a lot of people who were parson naturalists, and they saw scientific work as religious natural theology. And Darwin became uh, so familiar and and friendly with uh, Henslow, and spending most of his time ducking out of his own studies to go uh, and uh, hang out with this uh, botany professor. He was actually known as the man who walks with Henslow. Um, when his own exams drew near, Darwin applied himself, though, to his studies and was delighted um, by the uh, language and logic of a lot of the, um, the examination papers. And he actually came out 10th in 179 in his class for the ordinary degree. So he's one of those annoying students that didn't have to turn up to do anything and was able to fly through the course and get higher grades than most. So, um, I mean, good on him for that. You might be thinking, why would Darwin be studying theological studies as well? Isn't he like the anti-religion person? You know, he is 
the father of evolution. He is the the person who says we don't need any of that theology. But at this point, mm. twin worlds of uh, biblical theology and natural history were still very much intertwined. Like I say, we are years away from Darwin publishing uh, his theory of natural selection, uh, and the world would obviously change its views on on the theology and God. Uh, and this is where the two start to unwind, I suppose. Very much at this point, this is the mainstream view, is natural history is part of natural theology as well. After going for a bit of a wild spring break with his uh, group of university friends to look at rock strata in Wales, woo, hmm. that's that's a wild weekend. <laughs> Darwin uh, returned home uh, after leaving them a little early, actually, uh, on the 29th of August to find a letter. It was from Henslow proposing that he would be suitable to be a naturalist for a self-funded place on the HMS Beagle with Captain Robert Fitzroy. Uh, a position for a gentleman rather than a mere collector, as was stated. Uh, the ship was set to leave in four weeks uh, and on an expedition to chart the coastline of South America. Uh, his father objected to his son's planned two-year voyage, or gap year, I suppose you want to put it like that, um, regarding it as a waste of time, but persuaded by his brother-in-law, Josiah Wedgwood uh, II, to agree uh, and also to fund his son's participation on the trip. Darwin took care to remain a private capacity uh, for a very good reason. It basically meant he was working on the ship as the naturalist, but it meant that he would take control over any collections intended uh, for scientific uh, institutions, which meant that he could basically sell any uh, specimens that he had uh, for things like that. So we finally make it to the Beagle, the most famous ship when we think of Charles Darwin. Uh, this is probably the single most well-known aspect of Darwin's life, his trip on the Beagle, which was actually not just a straight shot out to the Galapagos Islands, as most people would think it was actually a circumnavigation of the globe. It took almost five years to complete. I mean, at that point, going around the globe is certainly no mean feat. So they set off from the UK. They ended up on the east coast of South America, where they worked their way downwards uh, and ended up in um, Tierra del Fuego. He actually took part in the carnival in Rio de Janeiro, at the time, which would have been a hilarious thing to see, a young Charles Darwin mm -hmm. dancing in a Rio carnival. Um, <laughs> they obviously then made it round the bottom of South America and up towards the Galapagos Islands, famous for its notable part in this tale as being the island where he looked at finches, tortoises, and started to form the ideas uh, of natural selection in his head. Even if he didn't have the whole idea there, it's those seeds are being planted. He actually spent most of his time on land investigating the geology uh, of various different places, whilst the Beagle itself was actually mainly surveying and charting the coast. Uh, he kept careful notes of his observations uh, and his theoretical uh, speculations at the time. Uh, and intervals during the voyage, uh, his specimens were sent to Cambridge together with his letters, including a copy of his journal for his family. Uh, he had some expertise in geology as well. He'd obviously spent a, uh, a bit of time studying geology. He was also an avid beetle collector and spent a lot of time also dissecting marine invertebrates. 
But in all other areas, he was pretty much a novice uh, and able to collect specimens for expert appraisal. So he was sending a lot of stuff back uh, to be looked at, but he was still sending an awful lot of brand new stuff back. He collected fossils of things like Toxodon, Megatherium, that would all go back to the UK to further what we know about giant megafauna from South America. Despite suffering badly from seasickness as well, and in fact, Darwin absolutely was not built to be on a boat. He apparently suffered really badly from it. Uh, he was able to write copious amounts of notes whilst on board, probably just to keep his mind off things. Most of these um, zoological notes were about marine invertebrates, starting with plankton, collected during a calm spell that they were sat there. Darwin experienced an earthquake in Chile in 1835 and saw signs that the land had just been uh, raised, uh, including mussel beds um, stranded high above the high tide line. Uh, high in the Andes, I mean, he went up into the Andes as well. He saw seashells, uh, fossilized trees that had grown on a sandy beach, and he theorized that the land had risen and the oceanic islands had sunk and coral reefs had grown to form new coral atolls. He's basically seeing all these little bits and pieces, adding more and more. And on, obviously, the Galapagos Islands, which were geologically new, Darwin looked at uh, evidence for wildlife um, to an older center of creation as to how they may have got there and found that the birds that we see on the Galapagos Islands were closest related to birds in Chile, differing, obviously, then from island to island, showing that speciation. Same with the tortoise shells as well. Darwin uh, obviously had wanted to collect tortoise shells as well. Uh, and he'd heard that slight variations in the shells showed which islands they came from, but he failed to actually collect any of them. Even after eating tortoises taken on board, um, the shells had basically ended up being thrown overboard before he had a chance to collect them. Uh, in Australia, uh, he saw various different marsupial rat kangaroos and the platypus which to him seemed so unusual, Darwin thought it was, it was almost two distinct creators had been at work in different parts of the planet. Uh, he found that the Aborigines uh, who lived in and around the parts of Australia they visited were good-humoured and pleasant. Unfortunately, their numbers had been depleted by European settlement. So yet again, he was quite happy to talk with people who at the time, by most naturalists and scientists uh, of the time would have probably considered them less than human. Um, and in certainly some cases, they did consider them less than human. So although he took uh, the idea only half seriously at the time, the phenomena Darwin observed fundamentally changed his mainstream scientific views about how species came to be. And after five years of exploring and collecting and studying the natural world, it was time to basically get home and on the journey darwin organized his over 5436 specimens in his 770 page diary and thousands of pages of notes and in doing so he started inkling of his revolutionary concept he wrote the zoology of the archipelago will be well worth examining for such facts underlying the stability of species he paused then cautiously added the word wood before undermine um to basically well, point out yet again, he wasn't 100% certain of his ideas. So in October of 1836, the Beagle docked in Cornwall uh, and Darwin took a train straight back home uh, where he was actually greeted by his family the next morning who no longer saw him as the failed medical student uh, and the dropout or even, you know, this fresh-faced divinity graduate. He was now an established naturalist and a member of the scientific elite, all because 
of his five-year trip uh, had given him the courage to seize a wild opportunity and follow it to the ends of the earth. Uh, and even though he didn't know it yet, what he was brewing in his mind would actually soon change the world. So the formation of an idea. He's back. He's got his notes. He's basically gone and seen a lot of people uh, about some of the uh, the things that he's found. And shortly after returning home, he uh, went to see uh, his lecturer, Henslow, who advised him uh, make his findings available to naturalists to catalogue Darwin's animal collection and that he would be able to take on the botanical specimens to help categorise them. Darwin's father uh, organised investments, enabling his son to be a self-funded gentleman scientist, and an excited Darwin went around London's institute seeking experts to help describe the collection he'd just brought back. British zoologists at the time uh, had a huge backlog of work due partly to the natural history collections being swollen because of specimens being brought back from the far-flung reaches of the British Empire. Uh, and there was a danger of the specimens just being left in storage, but Charles Lyle, uh, one of Darwin's uh, close allies, uh, eagerly met Darwin for the first time on the 29th of October and soon introduced him to the up-and-coming anatomist Richard Owen. Sir Richard Owen, uh, who had the facilities of the Royal College of Surgeons to work on the fossils that he'd collected. So Owen's uh, surprising results basically backed up what Darwin had come across and pieced together things like the megatherium, the toxodons that Darwin had found. But this wasn't the only thing he obviously brought back with him. He had brought back an idea that would be radical, to say the least. He started to look at how uh, species competing for resources had led to the most fit being able to pass on their genes and survive. This is where we get the idea of natural selection or the survival of the fittest almost. So this choice of term of natural selection for the primary mechanism of evolution uh, compared this to natural theology at the time, where, as we were talking about before, where everything was put in place by a god it's all perfect and fixed. But in uh, natural selection, there is no creator involved. Uh, specimens aren't fixed. And the process takes place over eons. There is, there is no design. It is basically traits that emerge over time. The ones that work survive. The ones that don't die out. And this was the big problem facing uh, study uh, for Darwin. Um, he, was, he was basically trying to piece together these bits to be able to give a better idea of things. But he also, at this point, had another big thing in the way. He was he was a Victorian gentleman. He came from a rich background, and he would, well, continue to marry into a rich background. This is one of the, the probably only controversial bits that I would say I find a little odd uh, about Darwin, is that he married his cousin, uh, Emma Wedgwood. Uh, and in 1839, he had several children, and moved to what would be the, the manor that he would live in uh, in Kent called Down House. Uh, and you can still go there today and see Darwin's house where he lived and basically formulated a lot of his views in his later years. His next move was to basically breed pigeons or breed fancy pigeons. And this was in order to understand artificial selection or how humans have designed organisms because breeding pigeons is obviously a lot faster than uh, waiting for finches to evolve over millennia. Um, he spent a lot of time also studying barnacles, um, which is one thing, if you know anything about Darwin, you know that he uh, did a lot of research into barnacles, and by the end of it, he actually hated them. 
because he'd done so much work <laughs> into studying them, he really <laughs> despised them. I can understand that. I mean, they're interesting little things, but yeah, I think eight years worth of study on barnacles is, I mean, I don't think there's anyone else who can come close to that. Uh, he worked on his theory uh, at the same time in the background, writing to various naturalists and friends for advice, but he didn't publish it. Like I say, he was, he was planning on keeping this until he was long in the ground. Uh, but Darwin um, wanted to wait uh, until he had incontrovertible proof he really wanted to make sure that he didn't miss something and be, you know, laughed out of uh, of where he was. Um, but in 1858, Darwin actually received a letter from Russell Alfred Wallace, another naturalist who I am sure we will definitely get to at this point. There are two yeah, naturalists definitely. that I, I I think are the the grandfathers of of natural selection. Wallace, I appreciate just as much as Darwin. Uh, but came to learning about him a lot later in life. But I, I, I think I like him more than Darwin in some ways because he's more of a working class naturalist, whereas Darwin had a lot of stuff given to him because he was higher class. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. That, I mean, that's neither here nor there. Neither one of them is is wrong um, in in how they did things. So Wallace uh, had also discovered natural selection by his own means as well. And he sincerely wrote to Darwin for advice. Uh, would he be interested in an evidence-based theory explaining how organisms evolved? Darwin's mentor, Lyell, uh, told him that he had no choice by this point. So Darwin and Wallace published a joint letter in the Journal of the Proceedings of the Linnaean Society of London. And then Darwin wrote a compelling 500-page book detailing his theory in one year. He smashed out the theory of natural selection by evolution in one year. Crazy, isn't it? It's it's absolutely insane. And by 1858, uh, on the origin of species by natural selection, or as we most people know it, uh, origin of species, um, debuted. And um, as a modest edition of just 1,200 copies, but soon basically sold out and became a scientific bestseller at the time. It was intended for a wider audience, uh, and the book explained how dissent with modification or, or transformationism actually worked. So people jumped on the idea. Uh, and he knew his theory of natural, natural selection flew in the face of it, the accepted religious ideas about creation, uh, especially because it meant that humans had evolved from earlier species and were not godly beings as the uh, the accepted view at the time was. So even though it was rather controversial at the time, uh, it did gain a lot of support from Darwin's allies, essentially. So people like Sir Thomas Huxley from Lyell, from Wallace, all of these different people who who backed the idea and saw that this was evidently uh, a much better uh, way of looking at the world. However, by this point, Darwin's health was getting much worse. It contracted, uh, I believe it's uh, Chagas disease whilst being in South America, and it had impacted on his health. Uh, and he tended to stay out of the public eye at this point. I mean, he wasn't exactly a rock star or anything, but he was someone who was well known. But his friends and allies defended his work. Uh, and in fact, many new editions of his book came out um, over the years and was published throughout the world. And for the rest of his life, Darwin carried on working and writing uh, at Downhouse and published even more books and carried out far more experiments with plants and animals. Uh, he looked at bumblebees. He looked at... Uh, various different plants and flowers. He had a massive collection of plants that he uh, 
he basically used as analogs for different things. And in fact, when he died uh, in 1882, he was buried at Westminster Abbey and given uh, a national hero's burial. Um, there are very few people who are buried there. And to have the church actually bury someone who flew in the face of the ideas of the church is in itself uh, probably the highest praise you can get. And over the last 140 years or so, since his idea has come out, his his life work has formed the basis of the understanding and development of the natural world uh, that we know today. So from myself and from Aaron and from everyone here, I'd like to say a happy birthday on the 12th of uh, this month on Monday, which will be his 215th birthday. There is Charles Darwin. An absolutely amazing man who did something that I, I, it's hard to, to quantify the level of work that he was able to put out and also the impact he has had on the world today. Mm. There it is. There's not much else we can say. Shall He's we an move- amazing dude. Yeah. Shall we move on to our emails for this week? Yes. Okay. Let's do that. Let's voyage on our very own beagle. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's emails. Um, We'll start things off with last week's question, which was, in your opinion, what is the single most important fossil find that has ever been made? We had quite a few ones uh, on this, and there seems to be an overwhelming theme where I think a lot of people have agreed with you, Aaron. Um about Archaeopteryx. So Lindsay Kinsella uh, has put Deinonychus, perhaps, um, that kicked off the dinosaur renaissance. Quite true. Uh, David Lehman has put our families, from our family's point of view, that would probably be me. Okay. <laughs> Frank Lowe. Yeah, I saw has, that one. That was funny. <laughs> Frank Lowe has put, hmm, the first thing I thought was Tiktaalik. That's a good shout. Tiktaalik is a very good species. Both Deinonychus and Tiktaalik are very good examples. Mm. Yeah. Uh, my other half has put, I'm going to be basic and say Archaeopteryx. There's nothing basic about that. Oh, there's whatsoever. nothing basic about that. Peter Foxick Agricola has put Archaeopteryx and included a lovely specimen. Uh, I'm assuming, by the looks of it, that's a lovely 3D print because that's much smaller than the actual original specimen. Um, if it is, that's very cool. Hmm. Uh Ian Wilkins has put the very earliest fossil found to date is the very most important. I suppose from a basic numbers point of view, that kind of makes sense. Um, that kind of <laughs> is where I went with uh, Megalosaurus and that. Jem uh, Pabs has put, hmm, both of the above or Archaeopteryx, any kind of transition fossil, I think, uh, as well as hominid fossils are pretty important too. Stuart Beard uh, has put, I would vote for Charnia. That's a really good one to uh, to go yeah, with. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was a good one too. Um, and he knows his fossils. So uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. Um, Karen Kuhn Wright has put Archaeopteryx. Uh, Beric Harper Legend. has put the Xenomorph, obviously. Uh, in all it seriousness, the Archaeopteryx. Gave Archaeopteryx's... the photo as well, which was cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, in all seriousness, the Archaeopteryx takes the prize. It proved the link between dinosaurs and birds, giving credibility to Darwin's theory of evolution, and it was a landmark moment in fossil history. And also, back on the whole Darwin thing, um, Thomas Huxley 
was one of the biggest proponents of feathered dinosaurs at that point in history, but it just seems to have got lost in uh, in in just people not bothering to look at it. So it, he was one of those very early people who was known as Darwin's bulldog, but he he was quite happy with the idea that birds and Darwin uh, birds and Darwin, that birds and dinosaurs were one in the same. So uh, he was uh, very much one of the earliest proponents of things. And yes, um, there is a picture attached to that of this lovely, almost Archaeopteryx fossil-like xenomorph, which uh, is obviously not real, but very, very cool. Yeah. So some very nice uh, examples there that have gone up. And this week's question, um, if you were very much like Darwin and had the opportunity on a five-year voyage of discovery around the world, uh, where in the world would you want to go to make a scientific discovery? Aaron, where would you be heading off to on your very own beagle? You've specified the world, so... so yes, well, we're not going to say outer space, are we? Right. Well, that, that, would, that would be one thing I would like to explore. But, okay, if we keep it to this planet... Um, the Mariana Trench. Okay, you're going. You're going deep sea to uh, mm. to find stuff. Interesting. I, I, I mean, I think I'd probably end up doing the very same sort of very similar thing. Um, I actually would would really like to uh discover. Uh, I wouldn't have to go too far in in doing this. I'd really like to to hone in on some of the cold climate rain forests here in the uk or oh, yeah. very similar sort of rainforests in new zealand um or maybe even um south america where the the cloud forests are that would be a really really uh, good place to find some sort of bizarre fungus or fern or something that someone's not come across yet you know i think i'd be heading off there to look for things like that i, I tell you what another place i'd like to to look at actually is um you know the ring of fire in the pacific so the underwater yep. volcanoes yeah there's, yeah there's underwater volcanoes where there's like these bacteria and there's some other more complex organisms that live around these things and it's so interesting how they're able to survive there but on top of how interesting it is that these complex organisms can live these uh very simple organisms uh, may well be the closest thing on earth to what we have to the original life on earth. So, very I'm true. Really like to see what's down and around there too. I think that would be really cool. But both of mine are very much ocean based. No, no, no. I think that's. I mean, mine, mine is in a in a forest based. So yeah, um, it just shows where we'd prefer to go and and look for things. I mean. To be honest, you wouldn't catch me for love no money in a um uh, a submersible. Uh, I really, <laughs> really not keen on the idea. And um, last year probably didn't do anything for you. <laughs> yeah, for that, then. <laughs> really didn't, really didn't make me want to go down um too deep in those things. Yeah, I it, it's it's the it's the alienness of it in mm. in a lot of ways. It's not the being in the ocean bit. It's the the literal sitting inside of a tin can that nice. could be absolutely impacted in to the size of a literal tin can within a second. I mean, you know, you're dead before you know it, but 
it's it's so much of a potential danger. I just I I can't bring my mind to not be possibly like constantly being in fear that something's going to go wrong. You know. Yeah, that's fair. But just below the ocean is fine. Like within the the top regions of the ocean, I'd I'd I'm fine with that. Something that I could potentially swim to the surface if something went wrong. But yeah. It's uh, it's a it's a bit of an alien place to be for an animal like us. We're not we're not built to be underwater. Anyway, near that level. Anyway, well, but yeah, I I just enjoy being around that kind of thing though. Um, oh, I know, I know. I, I liked I like diving a lot. Um, and one of my favorite dives, I've probably said it on the on the podcast before, so I won't bore everyone with the details. But one of my favorite dives was certainly. Nighttime diving. That just seems quite scary. It's the most. I don't think a lot of the people that I spoke to. I don't think they particularly enjoyed it because of that alien element that you were talking about. But I, it's the not being able to know it. what's around you. Yeah. Well, you have torches. Everybody has a torch, but oh, I know. But a torch is not so going to light cool. up the entire ocean. No, it doesn't. It looks like a beam, <laughs> like a lightsaber. That's what I mean. Is it's it's so it's so restricted, and you know. It's uh, it's a very alien world to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to tell us where you would go exploring, uh, looking for whatever, it doesn't have to be a new species of of plant or animal. It could be absolutely anything. If you wanted to just explore it for the sake of exploring it, then you can do so by uh, looking for that on our Facebook page. Um, you can also get in contact with us on our emails, uh, which is the nathistorycovered at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and obviously on Facebook as well. And you can look at our fantastic T-Mill store if you're looking for some fantastic merch. Drew has been updating that all the time. But more interestingly, I think we can now reveal this, Aaron, because we did have a bit of a, a Facebook Live moment where we just randomly videoed ourselves walking across a sandbar uh, the other week or the other day the other day um shall we shall reveal that in fact in just over two months time we will be doing a live show but not just any old live show we're actually going to be doing it surrounded by an audience <laughs> live which is, audience <laughs> which is kind of nerve-wracking so for those of you who live in the uh the north devon area or fancy coming to the North Devon area we're actually going to be at the Barnstable Library doing a well basically a bit of a one of a kind one off thing for the moment may go further who knows um, show where we're going to be talking all things to do with the River Tor which is the river that flows through the town here in Barnstable um, yeah. so there will be tickets going up on I believe their website or Eventbrite or one of the uh, the different sites that they use to be able to get a hold of those. So if you are there, come and come and say hello. We'll be hanging around for most of the day there as uh, as they celebrate. What are they celebrating, Aaron? Uh, they're going to be celebrating Pride of Place Day, which is just a celebration of uh, of our local kind of area. Hmm. So we've obviously chosen to hone in on all things natural history uh, about well the fantastic biosphere that we have. Uh, mm -hmm. around here so yeah if you are around come and say hi so come on down and say hello to us on april the 13th um yeah we'll be there 
and uh, hopefully everything goes absolutely fine without a hitch. <laughs> yeah, come come and support us. Um, yeah, it is it is just worth adding there that um, so as Gareth said, it's April thirteenth. There's two sessions, okay. Um, each one lasts an hour, so we'll be there from about. Well, we'll yeah, be from, there all day. We'll be there most of the day, yeah. But but the two sessions, one starts at 11 and obviously ends at 12. The other starts at 2, obviously ending at 3. Uh, tickets are um, limited, though. There's only yes, 25 think... per session. So if you want... But don't worry in that both them. sessions are identical. So we're repeating ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. do a lot. <laughs> so, yes, uh, if you're looking for those, go and hunt them down if you're in the local area. Um, well, should we talk about one of the other ways that you can support us, Aaron, which is our fantastic Patreons? Yeah, so we would like to thank, uh, in no particular order, but in all equal reverence and uh, and worship, uh, Chelsea McKee, Connie P, Jen Greenhall, and uh, Fogtober. Uh, thank you guys for your continued um, support on that level. Hmm. Yes, big thank you to you lot. You do help us out immensely uh, to be able to try and do some of the things that we uh, that we do whilst we're here on the podcast. Um, so there are obviously other ways that you can support us other than uh, the financial ways that our Patreons have. And you can do that by liking, sharing, subscribing, telling a friend, telling an enemy, going and telling the statue of Charles Darwin in the Natural History Museum all about us, because I think he needs to hear it. Um, I mean, he has been dead for quite a while, but I'm sure he'd be fine. Or I'm sure he'd be, I'm sure the statue would be fine with it. Um, so yeah, podcasts live and die on the word of mouth. So liking and subscribing uh, on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on does help immensely. Uh, and interacting with us on social media, people have been very, very, uh, uh, have been far more interactive with us on social media of late, which is getting really quite good. There was a huge amount of debate going on on just a random Facebook post that we put up the other day um, to do with. Hang on. Hang on, hang on, hang on. To do with the speeds of the fastest mammals, where people started uh, debating over all sorts of different things. Uh, to do with fast mammals and fast other animals as well. So, yeah, it's always appreciated when you guys interact, and it builds up a nice community of all the different people who follow us from all over the world. So a massive thank you uh, to everyone who does that. But that pretty much brings us to the end of this week's episode. Um, a big thank you, Aaron, for being here. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me once again. Always a pleasure. Um, and a big thank you, to you at home for listening and we will see you next time here in the natural history cupboard bye boy one does not simply propose a groundbreaking theory without going for a five-year trip on a boat named the beagle